0: Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of restaurantowner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.
1: And welcome to another episode of Corner Booth, I'm Chris Tripoli. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And today we're bringing you one of the more well-established food service consultants
0: that our nation is uh, very proud to have, Karen Malady, culinary options, based in Seattle, works internationally, and we've got her for the next hour for her to share her story. Welcome, Karen.
2: Thank you very much. And I currently live in Portland, (laughs) Whoops. <laughs> that's all right. I lived in Seattle for 40 plus years. I, I still think of myself as a Seattleite also. And I can't keep
0: up with you that you were in Saturday I, for a while.
2: I did. Yes. Yes. Loved it.
0: You must be running from the law.
2: Well, yes, but don't tell anyone. Okay. <laughs> now now everyone on the podcast will know.
0: That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, that's okay. We're still going to tell them that this is your real name.
2: That's right. It, in fact, it is.
1: So, Karen, tell us about your journey into the restaurant business. What, How did you eventually become a consultant? Where did it all start?
2: Well, it all started, I joke about this, but it really isn't a joke. It all started growing up on a farm, <laughs> uh, helping my mother cook for hired hands during hay season. Mm-hmm. And I always loved cooking and just never thought about it as a career growing up and ending up going to college. And I became a psychiatric social worker uh, in the long run
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and decided that that really wasn't the profession for me. So I went back to my roots and said, what do you love to do? And what I love to do is be in the kitchen and really share my ability to cook and understand food with others. So I started, (laughs) I left psychiatric social work and started working behind a cheese counter in Seattle. And from that started a series of cheese classes that were featured in Bon Appetit magazine back in the late seventies. And from there started teaching classes on cheese and, and, and cheese cooking. And then from there started a cooking school and catering service. And a number of restaurateurs uh, in Seattle ended up taking my classes. And as a result of that, I became menu development director, was hired to be a menu development director for a wonderful group of restaurants in Seattle at at that time, and was recruited uh, after almost six years with them to become Vice President of Food and Beverage and Product Development for Larry's Markets, fabulous supermarket group that had a very robust, innovative food service division and commissary and and was with them for five years and then was recruited to Starbucks to become their food and beverage and then ultimately menu development director and worked with the the team uh, that invented Frappuccino. Mm -hmm. So from there, I left Starbucks, and I've had my own consultancy for 25 years and decided it was time to help others with all of the insight and knowledge that I had gained and worked really for the first I would say the first 19 years exclusively with restaurants, and then was invited to become a member of a team on a big project for a non commercial uh, on site business and industry project. And because at that time, on site food service was realizing they really needed people with restaurant experience to come into the non-commercial world and really sort of talk, restaurant talk, concept development, menu development, et cetera, uh, vision creation. So I have been doing almost exclusively non-commercial work uh, for the last five to six years, but it's the same fascinating world that we we all live in, which when it gets down to menu development, food cost management, labor management, we we all share those things. So it's just been a wonderful journey. And I love it. I still love it.
1: Is your specialty more on the menu development side or do you consult across the board in terms of um, labor uh, costing and uh, essentially the the more the operation side of things uh,
2: i i do it all i can do it all my specialty has really been uh assisting people uh, with their visioning what is it you're trying to create why are you creating it what is it you want this to be what's in your mind you know often people will come to me with an idea and it's just it's a little nugget, but it isn't a fully uh, uh, developed concept. So I work with them on putting the bells and whistles and details around the concept, helping them understand that you really must run your numbers, understand the mathematics of the food service industry before going out and signing a lease. And then realizing the concept you have in mind may not be one that's going to allow you to bring in enough top line sales uh, that you can't really uh, afford to keep your lease amount within a uh, you know an eight percent of total sales um, number. So mm-hmm. it's very sad to me when I see people get ahead of themselves before they have really truly articulated what their concept is and what their menu. So yes, to answer your question, menu development, I've spent years doing that and recipe development for those who do not, do not have uh, a chef. Often people who are starting restaurants um, may have the the money to open one, but they are not themselves cooks or chefs. Sure. Yeah. So I just, I have posted more recipes and menus than, than I care to think about, which I might add, uh, and Chris, we were talking, I think one, one of the things that still amazes me, and I I sadly is an Achilles heel in the restaurant uh, industry and it, and it often falls over into non-commercial also, is the number of people who have never fully documented and costed their recipes. Mm. It astounds me. And that because if you haven't done that, you cannot possibly analyze why your food cost isn't what you wanted it to be. And as we all know, there are many, many reasons that food costs can be off. Yeah. Well,
0: you know, most of our listeners are independent restaurant operators. Some of them might be a little bit more savvy with a menu management program. Inventory controls, seasonal updating, uh, item sales reports, and recipe costing. Some of them that we're talking to today uh, probably are not. Um, so how would you walk them through? Or if, if, you know, if they were, say, one of your clients and they weren't having a successful, say, food management program, what would you wanna be telling them today with the concerns over supply interruption and inflation and how to manage that inventory?
2: Well, you know, Chris, the first thing I, I would say, and I have helped many, many restaurants do this. Um, I would say we, we have to document and cost your recipes. Okay. because at, And simultaneously um, really look at sales reports, whether that's back of the napkin or as a result of a, of a robust POS system, we have to look at the menu. How is every item on the menu selling, you know, the, the good old stars, dogs, you know, just what, what should probably not even be on the menu based on sales figure, take a look at inventory management, the degree to which, um, ingredients are being cross utilized. I know when I was menu development director as an example for restaurant services, I was not allowed to bring any ingredient into inventory if it didn't have a minimum of three applications across the board. That's, a, that's key, excellent point. It is, it is key and another thing that's key is to have um, what I call second use uh, recipes in your system where where you can use items that have been prepared and chilled properly uh, after first use can then be converted into something else that will generate sales dollars uh, so prime rib uh prime rib chili just as an example very very important but I you know ultimately you can't get away from costing recipes. And, and often, um, uh, Barry and Chris, what I find is I would c- come in to assist with that effort. And I would be handed, a, you know, a presentation recipe, a plate of let's just say fried chicken, mashed potatoes, gravy, a side of beans, and maybe a little condiment the presentation of an item on the menu cannot be costed unless all of the production recipes that lie behind that plate have been costed. So I can't uh, help someone cost out that plate unless I see a gravy recipe with proper yield, a mashed potato recipe with proper yield. Um, I mean I could go on and on you know the, i the things that can throw off food cost so that that necessary step in combination with looking at what is in inventory i will often f- for clients create a grid of every recipe that's in their system and then check mark how many times that that ingredient is used and sometimes it's Shocking how many one time use items yeah. are sitting in inventory, costing anything sitting in inventory is costing the operator money.
1: You know, Chris, I, I got to tell you, you know, you, you, of course, uh, when you came on board with restaurant startup, you're at restaurant.com, you know, we've been talking about inventory management, menu engineering, cross utilization for years. And now you have a very somebody's an expert, not only has a long History working in this field, but it's also very current and relevant now. Saying the same things that we're telling folks, but what's really hitting me between the eyes now is: ten years ago, this may have been the way to squeeze a few extra margin points out. Now, with supply chain problems and inflation, what Karen's talking about, maybe the difference between you being able to open your doors next week. Am I overemphasizing that, Karen?
2: Uh, Absolutely not. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, oh, Chris, go ahead.
1: No, no, I think that's right on the target. I think you're right. I
0: I think Barry hit it on the head. I think if our listeners have been operating for a while, they're probably shaking their heads saying, yeah, you know, you're right. I've heard this a few years ago. I should have paid more attention to inventory management. You know, I probably could have been a little bit more profitable. And now they're looking at each other saying, you know what? If we don't do exactly what Karen is saying, you know, we may not survive because margins are just so much tighter today.
2: Well, they are, and you know, I worked with a a, a wonderful accountant uh, in my my first job as menu development director, and he it, his mantra was, "Karen, this is a business of nickels and dimes," <laughs> and uh, and it is, you know, it it, it really is, and yeah. um, so so the the importance of of, of managing all of this is is so important. And I will say it isn't always necessary to invest in a costly recipe uh, costing system. Um, My partner and I developed a very robust costing Excel-based system on our own uh, that allows people to enter all ingredients uh, on what I call the mothership the, the first page of every item, how it's packed, what's the net yield, that's a biggie. You know, you may buy an onion for 29 cents a pound, but by the time you, you peel and dice and chop that onion, you're paying more per ounce than it may, you may have thought you were because you didn't factor in the net yield. So there are all these little things that happen uh, that can erode food costs, you know. So net yield, improper net yields, improper yield calculation, and um, just not setting par levels according to sales volume because right. waste is is a is a terrible thing <laughs> on so many levels, but it erodes food costs so easily. Uh, I would say one of the good things that's come out of this challenging time we've been through the last two and a half years is bloated menus have begun to unbloat. Uh, I have been a proponent of managing menus and keeping them simple my entire career. Mm. Uh, It's just an absolute fact that the larger your menu, the more complicated the menu, it drives food costs up and it will tend to drive labor up unless you've got really smart equipment packages in your kitchen. It simply. uh, It's a killer uh, Mm -hmm. of profitability, both from a labor and a food cost standpoint. So. That you know, I just there are just so many tips, tips and tricks uh, that can allow. And I also, since we're talking about you know margins and dropping as much to the bottom line as possible, uh, another thing that I I believe a lot of uh, operators don't necessarily understand is the difference between a food cost margin and contribution dollars. So you may sell, uh, I'll use an obvious example. If you have lobster on your menu and it's a whatever, $55 on the menu, you may only have a 50, 55% food cost, but look at the amount of money that you're banking every time you sell one of those items. So it's really, it's, I think it's art and science all at once to engineer a menu that will allow you to optimize profit. It's it's a real skill.
0: I think that's an excellent point because uh, um, and I've heard it said so many different ways, but successful operators know that they manage by percentages. You know, we we want to so we manage by percentages. Uh, But we deposit dollars in the bank, so they've got to be good at doing both. And that's a great example. We've had issues with that. Barry's addressed it many times in the magazine as well that, you know, menu engineering isn't just about making sure every menu item hits a target cost. Some Absolutely. costs, it's okay to have a 40 to 50% food cost item if that margin is much greater than say a lesser priced item that's only got a 32% cost item. So I'm glad you made that point. Too many people overlook it.
2: Yeah, it, it's true. And and it really, that's also where studying your sales reports is so important because only by doing that can you accomplish Uh, uh, the understanding of what your weighted average on a menu is. So you're absolutely right. You may have a food cost percent of 19 on certain pasta or pizza dishes, but the contribution dollars are also that, you know, $2 as as opposed. So it's it's the magic of how to bring all of that together. Um, And I would be also remiss in not bringing up one of my passionate um, passions, which is concept development and integrity and making sure that everything on your menu makes sense to what you're saying your concept and brand is all about. Uh, I I think this is how we, we got into this bloated menu syndrome. And it's it's challenging as an operator. Every customer has a request. Why don't you have pasta on the menu? Why don't you have nachos on the menu? And it becomes very easy to fragment your brand by starting to add items to the menu that don't belong there. That's number one, conceptually, it doesn't belong there. And I've also seen trying to jerry-rig new menu items onto a a line, a cook line that was not designed to accommodate that item. And it can bring a kitchen down uh, at peak hours, just to start adding so many things that that the, the line cooks just, they can't handle it. So the kitchen crashes.
0: That's true. Not everyone is supposed to do everything. So um, when you were doing a lot of your you know, consulting with this, how, how would you help people see that when you're working with them and they, well, the good news is they're busy, but the bad news is you can see that their concept is fluttering or in, in your words, the menu is bloated. You think the vision might be getting lost. How, how would you tell them, you know, time out and where do you go from here?
2: Well, uh, uh, typically, that would be exactly what I would say: is time out. Let's regroup with all the you know the key stakeholders in this concept. Let's literally hold a visioning session and revisit how did you start, why did you start, what did you say about who you were when you started, how much of that is still relevant, and really work work that. I mean, and it's hard work. Uh, I've worked with many, many restaurateurs over the years who have been in business often two to five years, and they were not able to say what their vision statement was. So we go back and do that work. And once you're clear about exactly the goal of what you're, to, you're, you're wanting your restaurant to be about, then you can look at the menu with really fresh eyes. And then and then uh, you know, as a restaurateur, you're able to say, "How did I let that get on my menu? <laughs> that really it, it really doesn't represent the the core branding and brand pillars that I want my restaurant to be known for." And and that, you know, those pillars can be anything from um, equipment-based, like it's a rotisserie concept. It can be a wood-fired, you know, a piece of equipment that's kind of the anchor to what a vision statement is. But there has to be an anchor. There has to be a... a uh, there has to be something by which the guard you have guardrails. So you can say to yourself as an owner, okay, I'm getting a lot of requests for whatever pasta. Am I a pasta restaurant? Does that make sense to my brand? Can my cooks handle Uh all the steps of doing pasta correctly without, uh, you know, sabotaging the excellence of what I know I'm really about.
1: You and know, I- Karen, it's it, it, on a number of levels, the things you're saying make so much sense, but I'd like it to help me reconcile something that has actually been brought up by um, other cons- expert consultants. Um, and that operators I've talked to makes perfect sense to them to th- too. And that's the whole concept of uh, the veto vote of guests. I've, I have, uh, friends and colleagues who have primarily a vegetarian restaurants said, well, I got to put a center of the plate protein on the menu because dad's paying the bills. On the other hand, there are people who have protein based concepts, barbecue, who say, I got to have something that is vegetarian. I'm just using that as very simplistic examples. Sure, sure. Um, but if you, if I, if you, if I'm clear enough for you to follow me, how do how do we navigate that whole concept?
2: That it, it's just really tough, <laughs> especially in today's world, where there are so many dietary um, needs and desires. The purest in me, Barry, <laughs> wants to say. If you are a vegetarian restaurant, then be a vegetarian restaurant. You know, that's what I mean by sticking to your concept. Now, what can happen and, and what does happen in life is t- things change over time. And if your sales reports reflect certain things, if your Consistent customer feedback, uh, you know, is expressing certain things. Then I, I believe, re re envisioning is something every restaurant should do at least once a year. Mm -hmm. Start there, Um, because no no one says you can't restate your vision. You know, they're not they don't aren't cast in so much concrete that you can't modify, but you have to be very, very careful about how you then reposition who you are and what the promises are that you are expressing to your customer base. So uh, I have seen, well, we've all seen, uh, all, of, uh, all of us here on, on this call have seen an incredible amount of, of uh, rebranding in the last, well, actually since and during COVID and it was beginning before. Brands often do need to be refreshed. My thought though, Barry, is that if someone has to re, it has to redo their menu too much, they probably want to rebrand. So if you've been known as a fabulous barbecue place for 10 years, five years, and now you start shifting to, you know, plant-based, you either have to do plant-based in a manner that fits the barbecue and that's happening. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you just have to rename your restaurant and call it what it is. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, but to do, to make too many tweaks and still keep the same promises and brand name, et cetera. It's a sticky wicket.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. I think you walked that tightrope very well in explaining to us the difference between the veto vote within a concept and within a vision, and when the veto vote is really taking you down the road to say, time out, I'm going to rebrand." Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a of a uh, earlier. Corner booth we did, one of, one of our initial ones. I don't know, Barry, remember we had uh, Johnny Caraba explain the creation of the initial Caraba's Italian grill. Mm-hmm. And that might be a good case for how Vito Vote kept him within the concept. Because the initial, the way he explained it, initially they saw themselves as a limited menu, really good quality, medium priced pasta pizza. Well, once they opened, they found that the groups coming in were requesting more. They thought, you know, we, we need some knife and fork entrees. We needed some salads. We needed a few more appetizers. So now there's an example of being able to answer the veto vote, but staying within the concept. Um, because right. they did stay very well within the Italian grill, but it's a much bigger menu with a lot more knife and fork activity on it than what they initially
1: envisioned. And he went to he went to Italy with his with his uncle to research what to bring back.
2: Well, you know- <laughs> no, They, they call that it.
0: research. I think that may have just been a pun. Summary, yeah, but, yeah, yeah well. I, I
2: love it. You know, if, the thing is, uh, and I'm, I, I often alert people to this. If you are going to allow your menu to expand, take a good look at the design of your kitchen, And make sure you've got the right layout, the right flow, the right equipment, because often menu expansion can lead to some degree of renovation. And, um, you know, you can't just pile more things on a menu or sometimes even worse, add 50 more seats out front in the dining room and expect the kitchen to keep up with it. So it is a, it's like how many plates are we <laughs> trying to keep spinning all at once? It's a domino effect. If you consider changing the menu in any way, you have to walk through the domino theory. Who's this going to affect? Is it going to impact ticket times? Do I need another cook on the line? Do I need another? How many more servers do I need? Everything has a financial impact.
3: Mm hmm.
2: You know, it really does. Um, and I, I will also add back to, to the veto issue, Barry. Uh, and again, this is where menu development is so important. Um, there are ways of creating, for example, vegetarian dishes that are really hearty and delicious and savory such that, you wouldn't even know you're not eating meat. So if, if you're not being creative and innovative around um, a specialty such as vegetarianism, vegan, look at how many vegan restaurants there are now. Mm -hmm. And you could easily not be vegan and go to some of these restaurants and have a delightful dinner and, and not even realize you're missing something. It's, it's remarkable. I, Kudos to to those people who've really put the work in on developing recipes that are so satisfying for anybody. It's not just about steamed, you know, steamed carrots and broccoli anymore.
1: That seems to be a a real uh, great opportunity for chefs to do that kind of work. Um, I know plant-based meat analogs get a lot of attention right now. But I've, I'll ask you this is it seems to me the the vegan movement, the vegetarian movement is much bigger than just putting plant based meat analogs on your menu.
2: Thank you for saying that. Uh, yes, I, I call it beyond the impossible burger. Um, mm-hmm. There are and this is where, you know, I kind of get my my hackles up because one of my culinary specialties uh are cuisines from certain other countries that ha- organically have remarkable vegan and vegetarian items that are authentic. They're delicious. They're hearty. You don't just have to have a veggie burger uh, on your menu and 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 call it a day. Uh, I I don't find that creative or innovative. Are there those who want something that's plant-based that still looks and tastes like meat? Sure, but there's such a world of opportunity doing authentic, uh, you know, Hispanic dishes, Eastern European dishes, Southern French. I mean, it's the Greek, there's remarkable food out there that is authentically vegan or vegetarian and wholly satisfying, that's for sure.
3: You know, Ken,
0: earlier you mentioned that um, the more recent five or six years you have been um, moved more into what you call non-commercial. Um, I'm assuming that's more like food service that we see in either healthcare, schools, uh, corporate facilities, contract dining, healthcare, which these are booming um, You know, yeah. food uh, service sectors. Um, maybe you could explain to us well, what type of restaurant principles are these sectors looking for? Why are the restaurant principles that our sector has operated on for so long becoming important to those segments?
2: That's a great question. And it's fascinated me, really. And, and I would say probably the primary driver that, that I am noticing is the, is the issue of concept development and uh, you know, f- food hall mentality uh, even because you have in, in these situations, you have people who are eating in your facility every day. Restaurateurs have, the, have the, the, really the luxury, and I've really come to appreciate this as a luxury. You can choose to go a re- to a restaurant or not. You can choose to go to a restaurant once a week, once a month, once a year. In non-commercial food service, uh, you are there every day. Now, right now, that's the disruption of the return to work policies is causing utter chaos. Uh, But now it's come to mind that if you have an on-site food service at a large, let's say, business and industry account, let's just say Microsoft. Yeah. Yeah. You are compete. You are whether historically you've realized it or not. You are competing with the street. So you know the the demographic issues, the uh, competitive landscape around your facility. What's going on out in the restaurant world? That's that's becoming very very successful, and I would say especially in the fast casual category. Mm-hmm. I mean the fast casual is just exploding. There are remarkable creative concepts out there in that category. Everything from curry to arepas, it's remarkable. So inside your four walls as a an on-site food service uh provider, you have to build conceptual variety in, into your offerings or people won't participate in the program. And if the employees don't participate in the program, just like if people don't come to your restaurant, you cannot be financially successful. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's number one. Uh, second is authenticity. The The, the issue with, well, Authenticity and transparency, they, they kind of go hand in hand, that's showing up everywhere. What is this ingredient? Where did it come from? Tell us about this ingredient. Do you have integrity with your ingredient choices? Um, and it's, it's exactly the same as operating a restaurant. You know, uh, I would say the biggest difference is, uh, unfortunately, for many of the uh, on-site operators, you have to become, you have to be an expert in all of these cuisines. The beauty of a restaurant is you can stay focused. Mm -hmm. So, You know, recently a tour of some of the new food halls in New York City. Phenomenal. The variety of foods. But each of those spots is operated by by someone who owns that restaurant and specializes in arepas. So the operators, whether you're self-operated or you have a contract food service as your operator, you have to now be a, a Latin cuisine expert and have a taqueria. You have to be a pizza expert. You have to be a sushi expert. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's the antithesis of how I recommend focus in a, in a restaurant. You know, I mean, it's it's really fascinating because you can't just have a grill and a deli and call it a day anymore. It's not enough.
1: Something that I noticed, Karen, and I'm hoping that you can um, continue to add to these pearls of wisdom is I've learned I learned more about keeping your ear to the ground of your market and your guests from campus dining directors and any other group of people who will tell you that the menu for a private all girls college in Massachusetts is gonna be a lot different than the menu in a historically black university in the Southeast. And it's going to be a different menu to a state university in the Midwest. And you will know how you're doing based on what goes into the trash every day. Is there anything, first of all, would you comment on that? And is any, and secondly, is there anything that our independent operators can take from those words?
2: Well, it's very real. Uh, and, and just as, as an example, and I think this is also Uh, multi-unit operators have certainly uh, experienced this. You know, what what is on your menu in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma may need some degree of engineering if you take it to Boise, Idaho. You know, it it just, everything doesn't work everywhere. Small small example as it is, uh, when I was opening new markets uh, for Starbucks, Um, we went in advance and did thorough competitive analysis. What what do people in this city eat? What do they love? What are the big sellers? So for example, I came back from Miami and said, guess what? We got to have Cubano coffee on the menu. You have to have sweet tea in the South. You you have to pay attention. And I would go so far as to say, uh, I've worked with clients who've, open maybe two more restaurants in the same city, in different locations of the city and have uh, slightly altered their menu composition and sometimes the price points, the selling prices. So uh, you cannot ignore the psychographic demographic uh, audience that, that you're speaking to, that, that, you're, that you're serving. It's critical to understand that and to assume one size fits all, no matter where you put it, faulty thinking.
1: I imagine if you have an independent operation, I'm Chris, you can speak to this as well with your experience that you've been in business for 10, 15 years and all of a sudden the demographic of your guests has changed yeah. And you haven't changed with it. Um, and we do have a number of uh, members and readers who fit in that criteria. They've been doing it for a while. Things are going well, but different guests are showing up or not showing up.
0: That's very true. Uh, that's, um, we normally call that, and, and Karen, maybe you can comment it, because I know that you've spent a lot of time in this too, where you're, you're working with someone who's well-established. So that's wonderful you've been successful in a particular market for 25 years, yay. Uh, but then they notice that things are slipping and maybe it's just because the market's changing. So we have to remind them who was the core target, yes. you know, for the particular, is this a high-end independent restaurant? Is it more of a business clientele? Is it? And they said, oh yeah, I mean, initially what we wanted to hit was, you know, that that person of say relatively high income, uh, man or woman at 45. So our design, our concept, our entertainment, our music, our menu, and our pricing was to hit that. We're thinking, wonderful. It's 25 years later. The 45-year-old today was only 20 when you concepted that. So we have to, let's go relook at our core. What is it that the people in their 40s are looking for now in a atmosphere, in a menu offering, in our price? Because your market's gone on they're looking at assisted care facilities
2: now <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's so true and i i, I just have a uh such a great example of that no names mentioned but a certainly a well-established um brand uh it came to me and said you know w- w- we're still doing really well but we're noticing the people in the restaurant look a little different these days <laughs> and uh And who's really got the money to spend and who likes what? And, you know, I would say the brand started at least 25 or 30 years ago. So we just started dissecting all the parts. What's your menu design? It looks a little old and funky. Not sure that's the look you want today. Your menu descriptions. You know, how many times can you use the word delicious or mouth watering? And I said, you know, that's not for you to say, that's for the guests to say. So let let's let's re-engineer the wording of your menu. It feels really old old fashioned, right? Um we we looked at every single plate presentation. Mm-hmm. Um and dissected that you have got to, modernize for lack of a, of a better word and we've probably made, oh my goodness a, an amazing number of changes that weren't that huge. I mean they didn't have to rework their kitchen or anything but can we toss the pasta with the sauce and not just plop the the sauce on top of the pasta? Very old school. Worked for years, but with everyone watching Food Network, traveling, everybody's an expert mm-hmm. today. You've got to stay relevant to the times and the demographic shift. And
0: isn't it wonderful when you see that work, though? You know, that's the one thing about our industry that is interesting: is that it can work. You can go to these yeah. institutions. We. Speaking of institution, um, Barry and I had the good fortune of interviewing Alex Brennan Martin not too awful long ago. And he was able to talk about the three different generations the Brennan families from Commander Palace to all the other concepts. And I think he was able to show that it is possible. And he walked us through exactly how they knew they had to maintain the tradition Yes. And yet still stay current in the way they did presentation, menu development, style of service, because a lot of the diners that are in their dining rooms today, of course, are maybe members of families that used to dine there 40 some years ago. Yes. But what they wear and music they listen to and how they want to spend their money is totally different. But yet he still wants to get them. So it can work.
2: Yes. Yes, it, absolutely it can. And, you know, there have been a lot of brands that have, uh, you know, have have come out of core historic brands. It doesn't mean you can't reinvent yourself in a new environment with a new brand either, but yeah, we've now got the grandchildren of the original customers coming in and uh, uh, also uh, price sensitivity. Look at look at all of the the ebbs and flows we've been through economically, in our country. I mean, I remember back back in the eighties. You know, the the mantra was, "Oh, just raise the menu price. That'll take care of all all the ills we're, we're, we're suffering." No, you can't do that anymore. You you have to develop your recipes in such a way that you are controlling food costs while while presenting to the customer optimal value and excitement and deliciousness <laughs> and it is it's never been an easy industry ever. I would say it is even more challenging today with food costs rising nearly fifteen percent energy utility costs rising leases lease uh, uh amounts are crazy in some cities and equipment prices because they've suffered horribly from supply chain issues. Equipment prices are crazy. Mm
3: -hmm. So
2: we face all of this uh, as operators and members of this fabulous food service community and not that those issues haven't always been to varying degrees part of our life but yeah they are so dominant now they're so dominant and you know how and then let's just throw in and i'm sure those listening have been through this as a result of covid we then have to become technology experts and figure out in restaurants who were not set up to do delivery and pickup how to manage, you know, crowds of people coming to pick up, so they weren't bumping into customers who were there to sit down. S- spatial inadequacies to make a lot of that work. I mean, um, and then some of that chipping away at margins, all, all the while. Uh, I could not believe. I mean, I my hat so goes off to every restaurateur in this country for their resilience, their creativity, their willingness to do those who were able to. Some just said, this is so off brand for me. I do not want to become a takeout restaurant. I'm done. I don't want to do this. Totally legitimate decision. Yeah. For those who said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. I want to keep my brand. They re-engineered their menus so that items could transport in what I call a cardboard coffin mm-hmm. and still you know, end up at, at the consumer's home intact and still delicious. So uh, look at what we've been through right? as operators. It's truly mind boggling. Well, and, before
0: we let you go, and on, on that note, I'd like you to just take a step further Give us a little crystal ball version, a a vision, knowing what you know and the years that you've worked and what we've just come out of these challenging times. What do you see, you know, the future of restaurants, uh, how they're going to be succeeding? What do you see the future restaurant looking like, say, in the short term, the next two, three, four years?
2: Yeah. Oh, boy. You know, I we all get asked that a lot, and I think I think in part what what's happened is the crystal ball broke, <laughs> the for everyone, and and, and I'm very hesitant, yeah. um, but I do I, I do have some thoughts. Um, I I do believe that uh, the fast casual sector will continue to uh, be robust and profitable because they're offering better better food in nicer environments at reasonable costs, but high value equation. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's less and less time spent, especially during the lunch period for most people. It's not about one and a half hour martini lunches for most these days, okay? So fast, casual, uh, and they keep their menus simple. You know, they're simple menus. Good. You can only cram so many items onto a digital menu, menu board. Okay. Uh, definitely a pre-order prepay will remain very strong and facilities need to be designed with that in mind. You know, I see now n- new construction where there's a completely different entrance for the takeout person or the pickup person. Uh, uh, person, I believe, and maybe because I want to believe it, but I will, I do believe that there will still be the human need to gather with friends and family in a sit-down restaurant, where someone, where you're being cared for. You don't have to do the dishes. You don't have to thro- throw your disposables away in a garbage can. Um, Uh, But even then, they may be used less frequently because I think people right now are very sensitive about cash, cash flow. And we as operators need to be sensitive to that. Um, For the, the, uh, I really am recommending to all my clients that they look very carefully at the type of packaging they're looking at. Because, as as one client said, I need my food to be Instagrammable, even in a takeout mode. Yeah. And uh, I again, I think menus will continue to be more simple. I don't know that we're ever going to see bloated menus uh, again, because yeah. I believe people have learned mm-hmm. that actually it's easier to manage a menu that has focus and an inventory that has focus. Uh, I doubt food prices are really going to go down. I think they're here to stay. Okay. But we, and then the last thing is, uh, the big word these days is experience. What's the experience? Yes, the food is important, of course. But what kind of experience are you offering your customer? What level of service? The hospitality factor. Is your facility, does it make sense in terms of decor? Is it clean? When a person leaves, when a customer leaves, how do you want them to feel Yeah. when they leave? so So yes, we can talk food all night long but what's the experience? How long did I have to wait for my food? Was the server kind and generous and friendly and helpful? All of that, Chris, has to, it, there cannot just be a focus on the food.
3: Well said, huh, Barry. Uh,
0: I, I know that kind of hits a home run with you, uh, Barry, because you've said that yourself, You know that really going out is, it may start with food, but it really ends with the whole package. Um, yeah
1: yeah karen really i mean we've had how many podcasts that we we've talked to different people and karen sort of like is the uh the last chapter the the summary of everything that we've been discussing that you know john buchanan said um it all starts with the menu but um if the experience isn't good even if you have the money to spend a hundred dollars to go out for hamburgers and beer you start wondering: Is this the best use of my hundred um, dollars?
2: Absolutely, and I think very. Again, I think there's more sensitivity to that than ever. And Zagat Guide proved that for years. Um, was it? You don't go out just for the food; you go out for the total experience, the environment, the being taken care of. Um, you and it's. I've, it's been documented that the food certainly always has to be good.
3: Right.
2: But if the great food is not wrapped around a positive experience, you're going to lose people. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, my only hope is that the uh, people listening to this take everything you said to heart because
3: it was an experience.
1: And, and it's right on. I, the, it's right sorry on
2: the, to go on and on, but there's just no, so, so
1: no, we much, could listen for another you know, hour. This is, uh, this
2: is so great stuff. say, you know, it's a complex mm-hmm. Uh, business, uh, I think it's not uh, many people, not on this podcast, but the, the consuming public um, really has generally little idea of how complex this industry is. Yeah, so many certainly. things to consider. Well, I thank, thank you, you for having me as a guest.
1: Thank you for being a guest.
0: It was our pleasure and we hope that all the listeners have taken note of all the examples you've given them and the stories that you've shared because you were a tremendous help to our industry. Thanks again for your time today.
2: Absolutely. Enjoy the weekend. You Everybody, too. we
0: hope to see you soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth we'll be back next tuesday with more inspiration insights and industry best practices to help you engage your team delight your guests and grow your
3: business